Have you noticed anything creepy about the twins, apart from the fact that they're twins? Just because they're twins doesn't automatically make them creepy. It does a little bit. Yeah. When I was your age, television was called books. Are you employed, Mr. Lebowski? Wait, wait let, me, let me explain something to you. Um, I am not Mr. Lebowski. You're Mr. Lebowski. I'm the dude. So that's what you call me, you know? Uh, that or uh, his dudeness or uh, duder or, uh, you know, El Duderino, if you're not into the whole brevity thing. Uh, Are you employed, sir? Employed? <laughs> you don't go out looking for a job dressed like that, do you? On a weekday? Is this a... What day is this? Well, I do work, sir. So if you don't mind... I'd like to welcome everybody to episode 44 of the Book Exchange Podcast. I'm your co-host, John Lovell. I'm here with... Jude Lovell. Hey, Jude, what's up? Um, we're happy to be back with you again. It is mid-February, the year 2022. And we are, in some ways, I was thinking about this, Jude, in some ways this is sort of like the quintessential American weekend. Okay, you ready? Because we have... I'm ready. We have two... For whatever reason, uh, basically manufactured, but very influential events happening over the course of this next weekend. I guess one bleeds into Monday, but very American for those. If anyone listening outside of the country, this is a very the very American weekend. We have, of course, the Super Bowl, which is the uh, you know championship of the National Football League, followed right up by uh, the Great American uh, Holiday Valentine's Day. And <laughs> I was uh, so happy Super Bowl slash Valentine's Day weekend, everybody there. But I was just thinking, Jude, that, you know, it's these are both essentially, you know, concocted by, you know, the ingenu ingenuity of the American, you know, capitalist spirit, I guess. These are both two events that are, I mean, I hate to sound cynical, that essentially were created to make lots and lots of money. And, uh, you know, the, who's going to, Pay that money? Well, that's going to be your average, you know, kind of working Joe or working stiff like you or me or many, many people listening to this podcast. So that is my weird way to kind of seg segue into what we're going to be talking about in episode 44 of the Book Exchange podcast. We are going to be talking about the, the working stiffs of, of the world and working and work in general. Um, most of us in one form or another have some kind of means of employment. And this topic is basically going to, you know, examine, you know, work and the, the impact that work has on, on our lives and through either fiction or nonfiction books. So that's sort of, what do you think? That's kind of my like end around, you know, just like in a football game, kind of, you know, sweep to the right to try to, you know, get us into the spirit of the topic here. So how do I do? Well, I was going to pretend like I was falling asleep because of the rambling nature of that of that segue. <laughs> but yeah. that's just mean, John. 
No, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm just joking. Cause we like joke with each other. Um, agreed. You know, like we, you know, first of all, I agree about, you know, the, these two sort of the strange juxtaposition this year, these two holidays, cause the Super Bowl's kind of late, definitely quintessentially American. And it does in a way bleed into like, you know, capitalism and, uh, which bleeds into kind of who's doing the work. Right. And, uh, you know, just go back right. to your wry thought about, you know, making money. You know, I thought to myself, well, somebody's making a lot of money and I could paraphrase a great reading, you know, to listeners, of this show know that I was reading over the last couple of months, Lemmy Kilminster, I'm talking about from motorhead. And he says frequently in his, memoir which is just hilarious he goes you know somebody made a lot of money off of that record (laughs) whatever whatever record he was talking about that belonged to motorhead that you know music he created he kept saying somebody made a lot of money off that i don't know who because it damn sure wasn't me you know like (laughs) and uh this is pretty funny but um yeah that you know and i and we are gonna get into at least on my list today in in this episode not to go on and on but Definitely be getting into capitalism, sort of American money making, not exclusively. I think we'll also talk about, you know, work in other countries. But, um, you know, some of that um, capitalistic side of whatever you define as work is going to be part of the discussion today. So it's going to be wild. It's just one of these topics that just kind of can go zigzag all over. And that that is how the Lovell brothers operate on this podcast. Yeah, well, it, you know, it, it may struck some listeners as a sort of a strange topic initially, but, but you know, as usual, or as not usual, but as often happens on this show, we kind of suggest a topic and you think, I, you know, I don't know, I don't, I, I'm not sure I'm going to find books on, you know, either on or having to do with that topic. But when it comes to, you know, working and like pursuing a career or a job or being exploited by a job, I mean... <laughs> That's a subject that just has come up, up over and over again for as long as, you know, men and women have been writing books, frankly. Um, so, yeah, it's a, there's a lot of rich fodder here. And I, I don't know why I was just thinking about, you know, the ways that both of these events that are, quote unquote, being celebrated in this upcoming weekend are, are basically concoctions, <laughs> you know, yeah, pure and right. simple. You know, they're just inventions. So that got me thinking about, you know, uh, you know, money and making money and, and which is the lubricant that turns the wheels of, of the whole thing here. So there's a lot there's a lot that we'll discuss in the upcoming episode. I think it's going to be fun. I think, as usual, you know, we've talked about our list ahead of time. We're going to have some you know, unique and interesting recommendations for people, perhaps. So um, it should be fun to get into it. But, you know, as we get started here, why don't we start the way that we normally do just talk briefly about uh books we've been reading lately so with that why don't you tell us about what you've been into okay yeah yeah it sounds good i i was going to talk about the book i just finished but you know i realized that i've personally been doing that more and more and because you want you're sort of enthusiastic about most of the books you read but that's the book i was reading that's not the book i am reading so i'll just leave that one alone and uh, so the book I'm reading now, John, as you know, because we're always talking, is a, a great one. It's a real undiscovered gem. It's a very small book in terms of size. It's a novella, really. And it's called, and it's an obscure title that is roundly rewarding to, in my opinion, it seems like it would be for almost anybody who read, who would read it. It's called A Month in the Country. And it was written by an English 
novelist and writer named J.L. Carr, C-A-R-R. Almost nobody I know has really heard of this book. It was published in the early 80s. And it also, it's on my sort of long list or honorable mentions for this very topic, actually, um, the idea of work. Because it, what it is, is just, it's a very simple story. This is one of these stories that, you know, not a whole lot happens and not a whole lot of time passes. It's called A Month in a Country. It's just so set over the period of a few weeks. Uh, it was published in the early 1980s. And it's just about a guy in the early 20th century who kind of comes off a train in the English countryside and he's showing up to do a job at a really old church in a really old town, kind of isolate, isolated, way out, as the title implies, way out in the country, in the English countryside. And he's, you don't know much about him. He's just a young man and he's there to do a job. He's there to do work. So he spends three or four weeks and his job is to um, sort of uncover from centuries or you know years and years of sort of grime and dust in this very old church uh, a work of art that's behind this layer of like dirt and grime you know a restoration project of a work of art and they don't really know exactly what the art work of art is what it depicts or what it what its value would be etc and he gets hired to do this and apparently he has some sort of vague history of experience doing work like this and as the story unfolds, it's just about him doing this work in kind of relative isolation. And you learn slowly that he's kind of a damaged human being who's been through the rigors and the worst kind of rigors in the First World War. And he's also had some damage done to his heart, you know, not literally, but more like from, from an emotional relationship point of view. And these things are kind of blended in those experience he's had are kind of blended in with this project that he undertakes to restore this brilliant work of art. And that's the whole book. But what's so great about it is the way is the writing and the way that JL Carr writes about this man's memories and his experience and also about the work aspect of what he's doing and the meticulousness and great care that it takes and the reason why it matters that he takes great care. And it's a really wonderful book that has a lot of implications, you know, across almost all time periods, you know, when it comes to meticulous work, when it comes to labors of the heart, when it comes to art, when it comes to memory, when it comes to war, et cetera, et cetera. So that's what it is. You and I both read it. This is my second read. Magnificent book. Yeah. And I'm going to double down on that recommendation. So anybody who's listening to this podcast right now, wherever you are, this is one of these books that come up on the show every now and then it, 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 you know, happens to be that we both read it, but uh, the kind of book that, you know, we really want to go to bat for, it's not that well known. It's, it's not long. It's beautifully written as Jude said. And um, this is, this is just simply an amazing book. It's a beautiful book. Uh, it, as you said, it, it, I think it, you know, it not only is it about kind of the, you know, doing your job and doing it well, but it's also, as you hinted, you know, really, it's going to sound lofty to say this, but it's one of the best books, fiction books I've ever read about creating art and about how that process can be redemptive, you know, in the way that it, it helps him in the book describes wonderfully how he's doing this meticulous, you know, artistic restoration 
but he's also, you know, using that time to kind of relive his experiences and kind of like basically, you know, work out his trauma a little bit. And I, I don't, I don't think it has this neat ending where he finishes the job and, you know, everything's fine and he's cured. It's not like that, but it is, it, it is about, you know, throwing, pouring yourself heart and soul into your work and how that can, you know, have an impact on your spirit, I guess I'd say. And, um, I love the fact, I don't know if you didn't do this on purpose, but or if you did this on purpose, but I love the fact that you did not really talk about the painting that's restored and what is revealed as he works on it, because that's another interesting aspect of the book that I think is better left unsaid in case anybody wants to check this out. This is a, like you said, this is a real hidden gem. It's been reissued, it's widely available. It's a super high recommendation from both the book exchange brothers. So Great yeah, pick. And I, thanks. And, I, and I'll turn it over to you, but I got to say, first of all, it's from the NYRB Press, which we talk about all the time. And secondly, yep. uh, John John said it all or whatever I didn't say. Well, I didn't bring up the, what the painting reveals because I don't remember. And I, you know, sort of getting to that. Okay. Um, but anyway, so there's that. And then, uh, yeah, it's just, it's just, just to conclude, it's one of those, it's like a Kill a Mockingbird type of book, John, which I've never read, shamefully. <laughs> but it's like one of these books that the writer, um, like, you know, it was kind of lightning in a bottle. And, uh, and this writer in particular had other books, but not very well known. In fact, several of them were self-published, like yours truly, so I can relate to that. But um, anyway, yeah, it's one of these books. It's a kind of a book for the ages, except it just doesn't have the same reputation as something like To Kill a Mockingbird. But uh, anyway... Uh, I'd like to hear about what you're digging into. Well, before I do, I didn't expect this episode would, would you know, yield such a major revelation. <laughs> As it just did. I mean, this is going to make headlines that, <laughs> that one, of the, one of the book exchange brothers has somehow not read To Kill a Mockingbird, which is incredible because, like, even if you were trying to avoid it, you can't in this country because it's, it's assigned in virtually every school that was ever... Uh, founded in the United States since it came out. However, as you've said on the podcast many times, you simply didn't read your assignments in, in high school and middle school. So that, that was one way to avoid it. So yeah, I wasn't lying. I, I just didn't read it, you know, and I've, <laughs> and I've still never read it. <laughs> That's incredible. Have you seen I even, I, I even helped my daughter sophomore in high school, write a paper about it this year without having read the friggin' book. Oh my so. gosh. This is, this is truly blowing my mind and probably, the minds of most of our listeners. Have you seen the movie? No, oh. never. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I've just been fired from the show. Somebody's whispering in my ear, you know. Oh yeah, yeah. I got the same um, you know <laughs> message in my uh, headset as well. Well, I'm gonna fly solo for the rest of the episode here, folks. Um, <laughs> as uh, dude finds the door. No, I mean we all have huge blind spots, but that I'm more amazed that about that one but just it's it's unavoidable in in you know public or private school you know curricula no matter where you go in this country but whatever we'll move on maybe someday you'll catch up with that one i hear it's pretty good um <laughs> but uh i am reading and i'll have to keep this short because we got a lot to cover but i am and it's fine because this has been fun so far but i'm reading a an outstanding book of essays um, nonfiction, obviously, from the great, you know, acclaimed novel, American novelist Marilyn Robinson, who's very well known for books like uh, Gilead and Home 
and Housekeeping, which was her debut novel. But she's she's I think I've tried to get into a couple of her novels. And this is another admission, and 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 I really just couldn't get into them. I, they're pretty slow moving. I don't know why they just didn't grab me. But her nonfiction writing, Green, yeah, I have read. You know, I kind of got into reading her nonfiction by just reading a couple of her book reviews and articles and different publications. Was really struck by her thinking uh, and her, you know, intelligence and also her compassion as a writer. And all of these are on fantastic display in this book of essays I'm reading, which is her most recent collection. It's called What Are We Doing Here? Which is an interesting title. And um, she tends to write about American history, uh, early American history in, in particular. She's known for her vigorous defenses of the uh, of the Puritan people and how they've been kind of uh, maligned or given a, a bad reputation falsely, uh, e even in American history. And so she has written extensively on kind of coming to their defense and about what the what great contributions they made to the founding of this country and a lot of its principles. She writes, like I said, a lot about history. She writes a lot of book reviews. She writes a lot about theology and science as just kind of a, a non-professional in either field, because she what she does is teaches writing at the prestigious uh, University of Iowa fiction workshop or fiction program. She's one of the staples there and has been for a long time. Um, anyway, th this is a book of essays of hers, and it, and it ranges on subjects like I, I just said, and I just find it's, it's not, it's kind of heavy sledding. She's not the easiest to read. She's, she's, writes very, I think, beautifully crafted, but pretty intricate sentences. And one of these writers of essays that you really have to concentrate to follow their argument, but sort of like G.K. Chesterton or C.S. Lewis, if you take the time and you really, you know, give it the effort that is required, I think you, you get a lot of fruit from it. At least I do. Um, and so anyway, it's interesting kind of provocative essay collection. It's the second essay collection I've read from her. I read another one of her books, which is called um, When I Was a Child, I Read Books. And there's lots of literary views in that and, and other subjects as well. So uh, I just highly, highly, highly recommend her nonfiction writing. If any of those subjects sound like they're of interest. Again, not the easiest book to read. I, I definitely kind of struggle through some of these essays, but I find them to be very much worth the time. So uh, this is like this book is like a rigorous mental workout you know uh, you're kind of tired at the end of each each essay but uh you also sort of feel good the way you do after a good hard workout so that's how i would characterize it but it's a great book and uh with that unless you have any comments to make you know we'll take a quick break and we'll start to get into our main topic i just want to say on that score that you know when this podcast blows up big enough and her people come chasing after us to get it to get her to be a guest on the show uh ms robinson would be an ideal guest in a way because she's kind of unique in the sense that she's like kind of splits the Lovell brothers reading down the uprights in a way like i've read two of her novels won't touch her nonfiction, and you've read her nonfiction and, and can't really work through her novels so although I would read her nonfiction and you would probably read her novels, but it would just, that would be an interesting, if it wasn't for the fact that we would bumble our way all over creation, 
you know, trying to approach a woman of her stature and intellect, it would be an interesting conversation. No question about it. Yeah, she's kind of, she's sort of uh, some ways kind of an ideal writer for this show anyway. But uh, okay, well, let's, let's catch our breath for a couple seconds here, and then we'll come back and start talking uh, books about work. Will do. Okay, man. Well, I hope you're ready because as we've, we've done it again, you know, uh, we've chosen a topic for ourselves that's incredibly broad and I think incredibly rich, but it's going to be yet another challenge to try to, you know, mention all the titles we want to mention and yet, and also highlight some recommendations. So I, I think, you know, no more fuss and bother. Let's just jump right in. And I know, okay, so I know you have a hand, a small handful of books that you want to discuss and then a bunch of others that you'd like to at least mention. And I have the same type of list. So I think unless you have another way to do it, I think we'll just, let, why don't we just talk about, you know, turn it over to you. What's the first book that you'd like to, you know, kind of recommend and discuss and uh, you know, we'll get to the other ones as we can either at the end or sort of, you know, interspersed in through the conversation. Okay. Do you want to make? Do you want to flip back and forth on the main sort of selections? Is I think so. Yeah, I think so. Just for variety. Okay. So my first book isn't actually a book, but I really wanted to lead off with this. Um, nice. uh, depending on how you come across, I, I believe it's published uh, in in the form of a really small, like novella almost. Um, but I thought this story was really the where I had to begin with my particular sensibilities and, you know, on, on this topic. So it's actually a long, short story published in 1853, and it's very famous. And it's called Bartleby the Scrivener. And it was written by Herman Melville. Now, just really quick, John, is that somewhere on your list or um, should I keep going? No, keep going. I mean, it, it was it came into my mind, but I, I knew you'd be discussing it as someone who's written a book about Herman Melville. And, and, and it's kind of a, you know, one of the classics in this genre, if it's a genre. So go ahead. Yeah. And a lot of people know about Bartleby the Scrivener. So I'll try to I'll try to keep it limited. What's interesting to me, almost as much as the story itself is the context. But I, when I think of like a quintessential, I mean, you could take work in a lot of different directions kind of with many of our topics, but inevitably it kind of comes around, around to the grind of, of, a, of a sort of career or, or, and or an office. And to me, this is the kind of the ultimate original office story, Bartleby the Scrivener. So um, I'll just briefly outline what the story is about. And then I just want to throw in a, throw in a few contextual nuggets around it. And then a lot of people know about it, or you can even discover it yourself. It comes with my very high recommendation. It's one of the classic short stories in the history of short fiction in English, and certainly in American literature. 
all it really is is about it's set in it's a contemporary story for when it was written. It's set in a law office in New York City in the mid 19th century. And um, at that time, there were obviously no modern technologies or even semi-modern technologies to include like copying machines, mimeographs or any you know ways to reproduce documents. So the way that documents were reproduced in, in a law office and in any other office was by somebody called a scrivener, which is just a fancy way to say uh, somebody sitting at a desk copying them over by hand, you mm -hmm. know, which obviously backwards in time from that is as long as anything was ever copied, it was done that way. But um, at the beginning of the story, there's a fictional law office. A man shows up at the door and he's applying for a job he saw in an advertisement to become a scrivener. He has he's a weird dude. And he, as he goes through the interview process, but he has the right qualifications. Seems like kind of a murky kind of loner. Hey, let me let me cut in for just a second uh, on the word scrivener. Okay, so I think you're. Uh, can you hear me? Yep. So what you're saying is that you know the 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 famous like monks of the dark ages and medieval times who transcribed and sort of copied you know the great books and preserved a lot of our intellectual heritage, or at least in the West. They could all be considered scriveners. I I believe so. I don't know if there's any. I'm not sure if there's any peculiarity to the law or anything like that. But I think that's what, I think that's what they are. They're just copyists. Yeah, you know? uh, that's just that's interesting. That that uh, just kind of swam into my head there. But continue. Okay. And he anyway, this guy Bartleby is his name, and he gets hired, starts doing his work, and everything's fine for a couple of weeks. But then after a while, he starts to get requests from his manager that he, for some reason, he doesn't want to do them. So he utters, in response to some of these requests, what's now become a very famous literary statement, which is, I would prefer not to. And he says that without elaborating. So he, he begins to say this every once in a while, and he starts to do it with greater frequency, and it obviously becomes a problem. So his manager argues with it in some famous scenes of dialogue, argues with him about it. But Bartleby won't elaborate. He just says, I would prefer not to whenever the guy brings up the job or tries to reason with him. And it's just kind of an impasse. One day the manager is out and he realizes he's out on a weekend, realizes he's forgotten something that he needs from the office. And he goes in there and he finds Bartleby basically sitting there and using that all office as his home. And he gets arrested for vagrancy and taken to a prison called the tombs underneath the city of New York where he dies um, basically from like, you know, despair. And that's the story. <laughs> wow. Um, a very enigmatic story. And, um, you know, one could argue all day about the meaning of it, but right before the story concludes, I'm not going to say what it is in case people are familiar with it. There's kind of a, a semi-explanation that's offered because after the Bartleby passes away, they, there's a, a vague, it's called a report, doesn't, doesn't elaborate on that, that comes to light for the law office and it explains what some of his past job history was. And that in some way provides a bit of an explanation, but it's in a way even more of a head scratcher. So like I said, the story is very, very famous. A lot of people are, have, are familiar with it. And it's definitely a story that can be read as kind of a, a, a predecessor to many tales that came after it about office drudgery. Uh, you know, 
and both in in literature and in pop culture, everything all the way up to Office Space. You know, Bartleby has some fingers in through stuff like the film The Apartment and other um, so Kafka some Kafka stories that take place in offices. You know, all the way up to Mike Judge's movie Office Space. You can find traces of Bartleby in almost any office story or work of literature. Yeah. Um, I just want to point out, I'm not going to really go on about it more. I just think it's a classic work and I, it's one worth reading, puzzling over perhaps the mental exercise of trying to figure out for yourself what it means, what the phrase I would prefer not to means that all is on the reader. So I would just throw that out there to the audience if you haven't checked it out, check it out yourself or re-engage it and see what you think. But just real quick, some facts around it. First of all, Herman Melville was just coming off of writing Moby Dick and, a, and his classic failed novel called Pierre. And he was kind of out of gas as a novelist after so much effort and that had largely gone unrecognized. And so he's decided kind of almost on a lark to turn to short fiction, write smaller pieces to try to earn some money. So this was almost a money-making venture. Number two, it's <laughs> worth pointing out that the American idea was still very young at this time. And the city of New York was literally kind of feeling its oats, or, you know, and it had two really culturally significant or historically significant things going for it. It was fast becoming the central port in the entire planet. And it also was the hub of the whaling industry which in the mid 19th century was basically big oil and it drove the entire world economy. So the US economy and the US sensibility was like, we're young, we're new. It's like Joe Burrow in the Super Bowl, you know, <laughs> and, we're gonna, and we're gonna take the crown and we're gonna do it now. There was even nice. an orator at the time uh, with the last name of Everett who famously declared that the United States had solved all the problems known to mankind, you know? <laughs> <laughs> because wildly <laughs> inaccurate uh, prediction there, but go ahead. But that's that's indicative of what the country, the state of mind of the co country. It's important to point that out because Herman Melville was very suspicious of that, and he could see through it. That's uh -huh. number two, and then the third thing that I wanted to point it, point out. Um, oh gosh, it's escaping me. It was like my best point. <laughs> Where did it go? Um. Oh, man. John, I'll tell you what. Why don't you uh, chime in here on your thoughts on Bartleby? If it comes back to me, I'll let listeners know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's a good idea. Just hopefully it'll come back. But the first two points you made I thought were fascinating. So, uh, and, and also, the, you know, about 100 extra points for working in Joe Burrow and a Super Bowl reference. So <laughs> nice, nicely done there. Um no, this story is fascinating. There's so much you could say about it. Uh, you know, just listening to you describe it again, and I've, I've read it a couple times, but, you know, got me, you know, remembering the story. And it, it, in some ways, it like just hearing you describe it this time, you know, I was struck anew by how in some ways it almost feels like like a lot of Melville, not not just ahead of his time, but but weirdly modern, even even with the setting that you describe, which is so arcane, because. It's like he's like. Bartleby is doing almost like some kind of a silent protest or like, you know, like a, you could see that becoming like a hashtag or something. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, great point. Yeah, like, like, um, I would prefer not to. It's this sort of silent protest and, you Occupy know, Wall Street. 
Exactly. Or something that could, you know, take fire or become viral or, or whatever. So there's a weird, I don't even know how to describe it, but there's a weird uh, kind of modern feel to what he's doing. And I think in part, and of course, there's the, the other fascination of the story, which is like, well, why is he doing that? You know, what? it's very mysterious and enigmatic. But on the other hand, it kind of, you know, it, it always felt to me like, well, maybe it's less of just I'm protesting against this work as, you know, I'm, you know, it's like a con job, really, because the whole reason he's there is, is to find a place to do, you know, is to, right. you know, have a job, but it's sort of like, a, you know, a way, a Trojan horse in a way that he can find a place where, because he's found on Saturdays, you know, working on whatever he wants to work on. I mean, didn't you have a, was in the great Foster Mullins, wasn't he fired for writing fiction on the job? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was. Man, that's deep. I appreciate that. You're right. Then there's some of Bartleby in that too. You right, know? exactly. You know, that's, you know, so there's something interesting going on there, especially when you think about Melville and the, and the lack of success he had in his lifetime and, you know, that he had to find ways to keep writing his own fiction despite having, you know, quote unquote, real jobs like being a customs clerk. And, you know, so there's a lot of layers to it. It's, it's, it's a, it fits nicely in with this, with this topic just because it is like, like you said, and I, I won't repeat it because you said it perfectly. It's, it's basically like, you know, a, a pregenitor to a lot of the office, you know, fiction that we've seen ever since. Yeah. And I, I'll do the same thing. I won't repeat what you just said, but you made a lot of great points too, especially drawing a line to, you know, some aspects of modernity in it or things that even lead to the current moment. And then, to conclude, John, I didn't remember my other nugget. It's it's not quite as big as I thought, but it is significant. And it has to do with Melville personally, like what was going on with him. So his brother, Alan Melville, Melville was an attorney and had a law office in New York. And Melville was coming off those two big books, um, Moby Dick and Pierre, kind of like Pierre is obviously not a masterwork, but it's like it was a big epic novel that kind of really bombed. Both of them bombed. You know, the point is he had kind of an empty tank. So he was hanging around in New York, just hanging with his brother. So he goes to his brother's law office and visits him several times. And this is where the seeds are planted. That's why it's very interesting to me as a writer. And it also, no, most notably, was a, a real shift in terms of his palette for writing fiction. Like, I mean, his entire career had been C, C novels. And then he comes out with kind of a contemporary office tale. So that's very fascinating to me, too. All mm -hmm. those things make Bartleby the Scrivener worth your time. So let's end it there. Well, except uh, you just made me think of one other thing, which I won't dwell on because it's not part of my list, but uh, it just yeah, struck sure. me that there's another writer that we're both big fans of, kind of an older writer who's not as well-known now, and they, but won the Nobel Prize. Her name is Sigrid Unset. And mm -hmm. you just reminded me that she had kind of a reverse trajectory of what you just described with Melville. She started her career writing kind of contemporary fiction for the time, which is in like the 1930s, I think, 20s and 30s. Um, and like her best known book before she wrote what most considered to be her masterpiece was like a, like a office novel, at least in part. It was called Jenny. It was about a woman who works yeah. in an office. And then what she did was the reverse of what Melville did. She then, you know, kind of transitioned to much longer historical fiction and wrote a famous trilogy of 
set in medieval times in Norway called Kristen Lovren's Daughter. And that basically essentially won her the Nobel Prize. Yes. But it just reminded me, like, I didn't even realize till now that she had sort of a reverse, you know, trajectory to what you just discussed. But just interesting, you know, literary trivia there. We got to move on. That's only one book, folks. <laughs> so not even. But yeah, not even. But that's OK. The next book, the book I want to I want to throw out there and it won't it doesn't there's no way to talk about this at length because it doesn't have like a plot or anything like that. This is one of, you know, this selection is pretty dang on the nose for this topic, but it's a fascinating book. And uh, I, I'd, I'd like to recommend it. It's a book. It's an anthology that came out in the year 2000. It's called Gig. Americans talk about their jobs. And it, I guess if, it, if, if this book has kind of like a touch point or a pregenitor to itself, that would be, you know, we've talked in the past, I think on the World War II episode, about the great kind of journalist and writer Studs Terkel, and he would do these very well-known oral histories. Yeah, he did one about the Great Depression. He did one about uh, called the Good War about World War II, which we mentioned. He also did one called Working, in which he talked to Americans about working. Yeah. So this book is basically the same idea, but it's updated. And all it is, it's a it's a thick book. It's about I'm holding it in my hand. It's about 700 pages, and it's just a collection. They went around, they interviewed Americans and asked them to talk about what they do for a living. But what's astonishing about this book is a couple things. Each, each interview is maybe about five pages, but the range that is covered in this book is, is what is truly fascinating. So what you're getting is kind of just this, you know, these first-person accounts that, of what it's like to be X. And let me just, you know, it's divided, it's divided into sections. One's called workers and managers. One's called goods and services, buyers and sellers, transportation, plants and animals, food, media, artists and entertainers, sports and gambling, sex workers, children and teachers. And I mean, wow, <laughs> the, the, uh, the, the range and scope of this book is truly incredible. So you're getting firsthand accounts from people who do, well, one guy's a UPS driver. Another person is a McDonald's crew member. There's a steel worker. There's a temp. There's a bar owner. There's a taxidermist. Mm -hmm. There's a mm -hmm. store owner. There is an ad executive. There's a highway flagger. There's a florist. There's a dog trainer. There's a poultry factory worker. There is a food stylist. There is a book scout. Film director. Mm -hmm. Heavy metal roadie, MC, carnival worker, video game designer, Elvis Presley interpreter, squash instructor, bookie, adult web mistress, mistress, you know, labor support doula, you know, second grade teacher, Toys R Us marketing executive, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it's just a short chapter from the perspective of, you know, it's basically all it is is people telling you about what their day-to-day -day jobs are like and what and the and the headaches and the situations they have to do with across a vast swath of you know occupations and it is just fascinating to read that you know I had this book uh, you know I haven't picked it up in a long time but there was one time where I had it just kind of on my bedside table and I would pick it up sometimes when I was tired and I'd read like one or two of them and you're just like man 
a lot of them, unfortunately, it's like, wow, I'm glad I'm not that guy, you know, or that yeah. one. But some of them are like, holy crap, you know, I, I never knew <laughs> that that's what that person did. Or I, I didn't know that that's what, uh, you know, uh, McDonald's crew member had to deal with. And it's just that's all it is. It's just kind of like a cross section of American workers across all skill levels. And it's just really, really interesting. So for anybody who's interested in, in kind of learning about what people do for a living, you know, um, that would be the first book I'd probably point them to. And I should, I, I should mention that it's edited by three people, uh, uh, John and Marissa Bowe and another guy named Sabin Streeter. Came out in the year 2000. So a couple questions, because I, I, I don't, uh, when you brought this book up to me to prepare for this episode, I, I don't remember you even reading this book. How did you come across it? I think I read about it like in a, there was a short review in like a magazine or something that I saw and I said, wow, that sounds fascinating. That's for me. And that's, that's literally, I think how it happened. And I, I haven't read it, you know, from cover to cover. It's just not that kind of book. You know, it's just, you could, but you'd be reading it for a long time. But I just think it's every once in a while to just dip into and kind of, you know, it's like we talk about on this podcast where it's, it's, it's a great book in terms of like walking a mile in another person's shoes, you know, you and I, not to go down this road, but we work for one week as delivery people for a florist. <laughs> and it was such a nightmarish experience. This is back before GPS and stuff dating ourselves, but just remember that one week, how yes, yeah, incredibly difficult it. it was. Like you wouldn't yeah. think how hard is it to deliver flowers, right? But it was so difficult, and it was it was a nightmare. It was an absolute yeah. nightmare. Well, that's what this book is like. It's like it's like you know we're walking for a week in the in the shoes of somebody who's like an ad executive or like like I said a, a heavy metal roadie or a bouncer at a club, and just what they have to deal with, you know, so. It's just really interesting. Yeah, that's that's a really fascinating uh, book to bring up. And it does. I mean, it fits squarely into what we're talking about. But let me just, you know, we won't go on about it too long. But I, one other question for you, John, is a little open ended. Um, and you're kind of saying it, but like, you know, for somebody to. Um, what do you think, like the, the, the broad value is of like, you know, you can walk a mile in another person's shoes. You could do it with like four or five people, or I could see you like, you know, a documentary film, you know, cataloging the lives of five or six people. But when you're talking about like hundreds of people, you know, and they're working everyday lives, like what for you, like, what is the, is it just the idea of walking in another person's shoes, but like as many shoes as possible, or is there some kind of broader like cumulative thing going on there? And I realize you didn't read it all the way through, but like, it's like, how do you apprehend all that information in a book like that, you know, related to like the working life? Like, what do you take away from that? Well, that's a good question and, and a complex one. But, um, you know, for one, one part of it is just empathy. You know, I think it's so easy and all of us do it to walk into like a restaurant or a shopping mall or an airport I mean, there are people there who are cleaning it. There are people there who are, you know, working behind mm -hmm. the Starbucks counter. There are people who right. are punching tickets or, you know, waving uh, planes in. And, you know, just it's just interesting to know, you know, that obviously 
obviously those people have lives too, but to kind of know what some of the problems that they have that they deal with just kind of gives you appreciation. I think it's important to have an appreciation for everybody and like kind of just acknowledge people who, who do the kind of work that maybe we, we don't want to do. So there is somewhat of a, I don't know what you'd call it, like almost like an ethical or a humanist kind of quality to it. And then part of it is just fascination, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. um, pure and simple. But then another part of it is it's kind of understanding how the American economy works, you know, and how it's sort of structured and how it's dependent on how it's dependent on people doing jobs at all levels. You know, it's just, I don't know, these are unformed thoughts, but I think it, you know, reading something like this informs all of that. And none of that, none of those things are, are bad things to be aware of. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. very, very clunky uh, answer, but I think you, you get my meaning. Nah, you're, you're too uh, intelligent to give a really cl- clunky answer. I mean, well, I mean, you're capable of it, but you didn't do it here. I, I thought you brought, brought up some good, good thoughts and, you know, I just threw the question at you. So, yeah. But like a, a a perfect book for this topic, a really interesting one to bring up. Well, thanks, man. Um, and, I, you know, you stalled long enough, so <laughs> you're back now. And and by the way, I should say just for just for, you know. Shits and giggles, as they say, sorry for the cuss. Um, my list, I have three nonfiction books and I have two novels. So I don't know what your next one is, but we're about to find out. Well, I'm usually the, the fiction guy. And I, I'm going to continue in that vein now, but I do have a few nonfiction books to bring up perhaps later in the episode. But uh, for this one, John, um, I'm going to go international. And I realized nice. what this did is it gave me the opportunity to bring up a book that I think has come up once or twice before. I believe it might have come up in uh, our Nobel Prize episode. But and I don't know if this is strictly a workbook per se. I can say that in my mind it is. But it gives me the opportunity to bring up what I think is, again, an undersung, but one of the great epic novels, at least of the 20th century. And I, we're talking about world literature, if not all literature, that I really think a lot more people should read than perhaps do. You know where I'm going with this? <laughs> um, I can't remember. Yeah, I think I shared my list. Anyway, the book is called Independent People. Wow. It's it's written by the the Nobel Prize winning Icelandic novelist named Haldor Laxness. And if anybody was to go back to our Nobel Prize episode, I think we probably talked about it a little bit. I remember bringing up a phrase from that book that has stayed in my mind ever since I read it. <laughs> um, well, you gotta, now you, you got to say it again. Well, it speak, I will, but it speaks to the, the beauty of the book, which is one of the things I wanted to point out, just how beautifully it's written. Although it's a long book, it's not a short book. This is an epic novel um, published in the 1950s and originally in Icelandic and then translated throughout the world. And the phrase, and you you don't need the context, the phrase that I remember and I don't think I'll ever forget is a simile where Haldor Laxness wrote, like an eagle flying in the vestibule of the winds. And I will never forget that as long as I live. I don't know. It's just so beautiful and majestic. But anyway, it really popped into my head early as a workbook, although I don't think it's not strictly a workbook. But the book is definitely about industry and labor in relation to one particular character. And so I can just hit on it broadly. 
because I'm giving it my you know highest recommendation. This is an F, this is up there with things like 100 Years of Solitude, Beloved, you know, great novels that have been written over the 20th century. Um, it is about uh, a character who has an Icelandic name that I can't remember, but he's called in the book one of the great names in literature as far, far as I'm concerned. He's referred to as Barcher of Summerhouses. And Summerhouses is the name of his farm. So I guess it's traditional in this part of the world that you're sort of, you know, identified with whatever scrap of earth you planted your flag on. So his name is Barcher of Summerhouses. And the book is basically about this persnickety, stubborn, hard-headed man trying to establish and win and then keep a hold of his financial independence against the forces of the, you know, the Icelandic economy, politics, laws, etc. And that's what it's about. It's kind of a sweeping, people call it a work of social realism, where it's uh, very much about one man kind of versus the system and almost in his own head and heart kind of versus the world. And, um, you know, I can't go into the, all the details. There's a few marriages that are, you know, gone into in the book. There's, you know, so that it's got love, it's got loss. But it's very much about this Icelandic farmer who's raising sheep and also doing farming of crops on a scrap of earth in rural Iceland, trying to eke out a living and, and in fact, move forward. And he's so determined and hell-bent on doing so and standing as his own man on his own land. That is the basically what the whole book is about. And it's kind of he becomes kind of a stand-in for the spirit of the Icelandic people. And because it's set in Iceland, I'll just throw in, there are historical and uh, even mythological flavors in this book. You know, it's, it's, a, it's not without things like elves or wolves or spirits. And it's just a fascinating mixture of a society and a culture that I knew nothing about, but that has qualities that can be sort of held up against any culture or society and then a great character who sometimes rankles you and because he, he's so stubborn and he's kind of prickly. But at the end of the day, he works very hard throughout the whole novel to stand on his own two feet and kind of stay there. And as a and inherent to all that is great sort of earthy descriptions of the work he's doing to kind of cull his own land. I remember there's an amazing uh, passage about him capturing a, a a stray like ram and kind of wrangling it and like slitting its throat and it's like you know like killing it and uh and bleeding it and it's one of these like sort of hands to up to the elbows kind of books but it's all about his labor and industry and for me it's a novel about the spirit of a of a worker hard worker who's never far away from like his life's labor to kind of just stand on his own so that's my book. That's the second one. Yeah, that's that's an incredible book. Um, perfect choice for this for this topic in a way. Um, even down to the title, you know, it's it, it says something about you know the dignity of this kind of work, but really sort of the dignity of all work, sort of done well and in an independent spirit, or at least having the freedom to to whether it's work your land or work the job that you want to work. And there's a great dignity and um, 
something precious about that, even though work is something that we all <laughs> like to bitch and moan about. But, you know, to be able to to work your own bit of land or, you know, choose your own profession uh, is kind of a sacred freedom, you know, at least in this country or, or it should be. You know, unfortunately, yeah. the, re the realities of economics for many, 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 many people around the world don't don't give them those freedoms. But there's something there's a strain in that book about, you know, being able to, you know, uh, exist freely, you know, and and, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, sustain oneself through 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 your own work that leads to a sort sort of independence. Um, that is obviously something that meant a lot to laxness, but, uh, as you said, that's just a rich book on so many levels, such a, you know, it reflects so much about the culture in Iceland, which is fascinating, you know, the landscape, which is incredible and, and the huge character in that book. And also, as you said, like, you know, the, the, the blurry line between reality and mythology in that country, especially, and in that part of the world, you know, it all comes through in that great book, uh, yeah, that's just a, a fantastic selection. I, I'm with you. I, I wish and I hope more people will read it. Yeah, and it's just it's uh, and just as a last point, it's all that and then just aesthetically magnificent as well. I mean, it's a really beautifully written book. I mentioned that phrase, but it's kind of it's always amazing to me as a writer of fiction when like somebody writes at a high level and just sustains it for like a 500 page epic. It's just incredible. It really is. And um, yeah, we could uh, almost all these books we've talked for the rest of the podcast about it. I'm going to share one more novel that I'd like to recommend. Then we're going to take a break. OK, then we'll come back and you'll be ready for your next. Your next. Sounds pick. Good. Yeah, keep going. So I've got a novel to recommend that and this, too, is not not it's sort of it may sound like an obscure um, choice. And that's partly by design because. Part of what we like to do on this show is recommend books that, that aren't incredibly obvious, you know, or maybe some readers may not have heard of. And this goes back again to the New York Review of Books Press, because that's what they do. They put out these books. And and this book in particular is one I picked up from them, and it, and it, and it really justifies their entire mission, if you ask me. Uh, and it fit perfectly on this list, as, as you're about to hear. It's called Blood on the Forge, and it's written by an African-American novelist and writer in the middle part of the last century named William Attaway. So first of all, you know, it is, it's Black History Month, and that just happens to be, you know, kind of a, a happy accident. But this is an example of a book written by an African-American writer that has basically, you know, vanished into obscurity. But I think here's a book that should, that should be, you know, in an ideal world, it should be right up there in, in read in school curricula along with things like, you know, Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, for example, which is another great book about work. You know, there's some books that are just part of the canon. This is a book that, in my opinion, and I, I, I can't say this more forcefully, should be part of the canon because it tells such an interesting and such an important story uh, about a very, you know, prominent part and very real um, aspect of of American history in the 20th century. And what I'm talking about is what is often called the Great Migration. So after, you know, the emancipation of slaves in the American South for a period of decades, many, many, many slaves 
or ex-slaves and their their descendants started to migrate from the south to to the north in order to find work and to find a better life for themselves and it's a you know well-known phenomenon and so you know this is the the great migration is what you know really exploded population in you know certainly some of the great midwestern cities like st louis like chicago detroit um it's well documented this whole movement this is a that, that looks at that and it looks at three brothers their name the last name is moss so the moss brothers and they flee from the rural south in order to find work in the industries that are exploding in the north and they end up i, I can't you know i can't for the life of me remember what what city that this takes place in i should know that but they end up all three of them working in a series of uh steel mills and so this is largely a novel about working in steel mills and the way the steel mills are described is basically like an inferno you know there's a hellish aspect to this book very much intentional and they're very vivid uh uh, accounts of what it's like to work in in the searing heat of a steel mill, which is I know will have some interest to you, Jude, because you live in an area where there are some old steel mills that are <laughs> that are kind of looming on the skyline <laughs> where you yeah. live. So that's right. interesting, Bethlehem. Yeah, right. yeah. yeah. So what this book this book is just it's a description of their kind of journey north, and then frankly the very violent kind of seamy life that they live trying to get by working in a steel mill and working with the types of people who end up working in a steel mill as the jacket copy says you know the delivered by day into the searing inferno of the steel mills by night they encounter a world of surreal devastation crowded with dog fighters whores cripples strikers and scabs so and then it says a little bit later uh you know Attaway's novel is an unprecedented confrontation with the realities of American life, offering an apocalyptic vision of the melting pot, not as an icon of hope, but as an instrument of destruction. And that is just a great way to describe this book yeah, uh, yeah. on a number of levels. But I'd like to read just to kind of whet your appetite and hopefully that of some of our listeners. This book was discovered, again, William Attaway, had you ever heard that name before this NYRB book? Cause I hadn't. No, I mean, I wouldn't have been able to even say who wrote blood on the forge. Cause I know the name from you, the title. Yeah. I mean, he's just completely gone. He's disappeared from American literary history. And that's a great misfortune because this is truly a great book. But at the time, this book was noticed by two other very much better known African-American writers. One was Richard Wright who wrote Native Son. The other was Ralph Ellison, who wrote Invisible Man. And I'd like to read a quote from both of them about this book, because they're both of these quotes are fascinating. And should, if anyone has any interest at all in this kind of a book, it should really pique your interest. So this is Richard Wright writing about Blood on the Forge. He says, in his Blood on the Forge, William Attaway presents with skill the impact of industrial life on the simple black folk who fled the plantations of the South. It will add a new and better knowledge of American civilization. The reality that Attaway depicts is not beautiful, but it is nonetheless moving and human for that. Oh, that's a perfect description of this, of my experience with this book. Yeah. Uh, 
and it's just, and, and it's why I believe it should be a part of, you know, school curricula. Absolutely. Books like this, it's, it's just tragic that they've, that they've been lost. And then um, Ralph Ellison, he wrote, spanning two areas and eras of Negro experience. Those of the semi-feudal plantation and the industrial urban environment. Attaway's source material receives its dynamic movement from the clash of two modes of economic production. The characters are caught in, in the force of a struggle which, like the steel furnace, roars throughout its pages. Attaway has proven himself one of the most gifted Negro writers. I mean, if, if those two quotes don't get you interested in reading this book, you know, if you're interested in American history and, and you know, novels about workers, I, I don't know what will. So I'm going to I'm going to kind of leave it there. But I, I really this book like kind of burned its way into my brain like a brand. And I don't remember all the details, but I've never forgotten it. And I would love to see more people read it. Yeah, starting with me like that, you got me convinced. And also, I didn't realize that the book stood out so much to you or had made such an impact on you. I just didn't remember that. So that was but you can obviously hear it in your comments about it. And uh, also, it's just great that you brought up an African-American writer. You know, um, I didn't I didn't do that myself, although I thought about bringing up, although we've talked about before, um, the, the works of Toni Morrison, because a lot of her books have a lot to do with work whether it's mm -hmm. just like working to try to pay the bills and like the dignity of working women in particular, but other of her books are historical in nature. Like there's a lot of hard labor and beloved again, particularly with women, but anyway, I, I, I didn't go that way, but um, this book, obviously for all the things you just, the, all the, all the things you bring up obviously would be worth the time. I, I personally would be very fascinated to read about a, novel that's set in a steel mill and then uh, to tie it in with the migration and the black experience especially in black history month it's a great one so uh, i'll leave most of your comments to, for readers to absorb and assess but it's a great choice well thanks man i uh, appreciate that i hope readers have and listeners have gotten something out of this discussion so far I'm gonna take a break now and come back for the second half of our episode so stay tuned sounds good All right. Well, let's keep rolling. I think we're over to your next selection there, Jude. Yep. And this is kind of my third main selection. This one's a little bit of a bucket. So, I, John, I couldn't do this episode without going here. So I decided I would go here. We've got our own we got our own takes on the idea of what work is and what work isn't, as everybody else does. But for me, so this is, might be a little bit more niche for certain listeners. I don't know. Who hear this but i i can't talk about work without talking about one thing that i consider to be work and that i could argue passionately about based on my life which is writing so for me one of the sort of buckets for this had to be books that had to do with the, the work involved with writing in a way and then, yep. and then uh so i chose one writer who's written very eloquently on that subject. And then I got to throw in another book by the same writer that's not about writing per se, but I'll, but I'll explain. So I called my 
and there's a writer that we've discussed a few different times, um, but not these particular books, especially more recently, and that's John Steinbeck. So this bucket for me is three books by John Steinbeck. And this is where we get into a little bit of the nonfiction. But for me, so I was starting to say it, and I sort of, I think I might have felt this way early on, but I definitely feel this way now. And that is that, quite simply, writing either fiction or nonfiction is work itself, in a way. A lot of people think that, you know, writing is not like sort of, quote unquote, a real job. You know, you're not swinging a hammer. You're not, uh, you're not scrubbing dishes or what have you. Not that kind of work, but it's but it's definitely work intensive. And I'm you're talking with somebody now who's in the middle of kind of a, a spell of writing short stories, and those for me in particular are a lot of work. Like I, I can tell you for sure, the last four or five short stories I've written, and I'm lucky to be on a little bit of a of a role with writing short fiction. But every one has been work intensive, and I'm talking about not just the work, the research and the kind of the mental, I don't know what the word I want, sort of like sharpening or like industry that's involved and kind of preparing to write a short story, but also sitting down every day and kind of seeing it through to the end. I'm telling you, for those who don't know, it's tough. <laughs> and so John Steinbeck has published two nonfiction books and it was probably his publishers who did this, but um, they're, in effect, journals that catalog the writing of two of his most famous works. And that's those are the ones I wanted to bring up. And then I'm going to talk about a novel of his that's not as famous really quickly. But these books are still available. As far as I know, they're still in print. First one is called Working Days. And that's a journal he kept in the mid-1930s, the heart of the Great Depression, while he was working on the famous novel, um, The Grapes of Wrath. And then the second one, which is even, I think, a little bit even more acclaimed is a book called Journal of a Novel. And it's about his work on the famous book East of Eden, which came out 20 years later, roughly, you know, in the 1950s. And both of these books are, you know, kind of a lost art of like journaling. You know, not a lot of writers get their journals published anymore. But if you go back to like big writers from the 20th century, you know, somebody eventually somebody would publish like their journals, but there's not a lot of journaling, I think, done in this, at least not in the same way, you know, that it was done perhaps in older times. And John Seinbeck left behind records of his grappling with the industry involved in writing those two famous books. So all they are is their entries as he labored through bringing those great works of fiction to life. Obviously, for me, that's very interesting. I don't know if it would be for everybody, but I would suggest, though, that if you're a big fan of either book, either The Grapes of Wrath or East of Eden, these books would also be worth reading. And just to give you little examples, like the kind of things we're talking about, there's a section of the book called Working Days that unpacks and gives you all the history behind the way that the novel's title Grapes of Wrath came to John Steinbeck and it was suggested by his first wife at the time. She famously is the one who named that book. And she went to bat for it repeatedly until he kind of came around. All that's cataloged in um, the book Working Days. So that's an example of kind of like, a, you know, you know, 
a great man with a great woman behind him in a way, <laughs> at least as far as that goes, because when he, you know, and the catalogs, the whole thing, when he first heard that from where he thought it was like ridiculous and pretentious. And then he came around to deciding to, that she was correct. And it's a very famous title. You know, the lyric that comes from the battle hymn of the Republic. Yep. In working days, I think he was a little, he was older and he was more, I mean, sorry, the journal of a novel about East of Eden. He was older and he's definitely more wise and seasoned and he's very conscious of what he's trying to achieve in that book, East of Eden. And he explains how he had gone on a walk with his uh, third wife at the time, Elaine Steinbeck, who was married to him until he passed away. And he told her that he had an ambition to write a, a big book with everything that he knew in the book. And the East of Eden was the result of that effort. But the book Journal of a Novel kind of catalogs his thinking as far as where he was at in his development, how he wanted to infuse his work with everything that he had learned. So it's a very different story about what ended up being a very different book. But, you know, if not equally as famous, also very famous in one of the books that got John Steinbeck the Nobel Prize. So these are two books that just catalog and they talk a lot about just the labor of writing. He talks about the physical implements. He talks about the, the rigor of what you do when you have writer's block. He talks about how to press through. And I, I know this from my own experience. There are days you just don't want to, you know, you got to move the thing along. You don't feel like it. What do you do? Do you press through or do you not press through? All these things are explored in those two nonfiction books. I'll leave it at there with those two. And then the third book I wanted to bring up because we're talking about work. And I, I think I have mentioned it before on this podcast, so I won't go for too long, but it was hard for me to not to mention the book in dubious battle, which is John Steinbeck's 1936 novel that immediately preceded the grapes of wrath. And what's so fascinating about in dubious battle is that it's all about work because it's about these guys migrating to California during the depression and getting jobs in apple orchards and then trying to organize very much in the spirit of kind of like the socialist and quasi-communist environment that John Steinbeck was often accused of being sort of enamored with. I mean, it's a book about protests, it's a book about labor, it's a book about actually doing the labor, and it's very interesting book to read in terms of its uh, um, <coughs> I don't know what the word I want is, but like terms of it's being the predecessor to the grapes of wrath because you can really see it's the first novel he wrote in my opinion that had the kind of um dramatic heft at the end of the novel that led to the to wrath that kind of got him into the place where he could write a book with such major emotional impact <laughs> and furthermore it's just interesting how far it digs into the labor of working in the fields in California at that time in a very bygone and lost time of our history. So let me leave it there and see what you have to say. Well, and I know uh, in dubious battle is a book that has come up before on this podcast. I'm trying to remember which episode, but I know that you discussed it a little bit. Uh, I can't remember, but I know it's come up in the past. What's that? I can't either. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, those who are interested can kind of look that up in our in our show archives, which you can find at, at our Anchor website, by the way. 
Um, anyway, uh, yeah, the, you know, it's not surprising to me that Steinbeck would come up. You know, he's an author whose name sw- swam into my mind, but I, and I knew he would make your list in one form or another, just because, as you've described elsewhere on the show, you know, he's one of the he's one of the great influences. Or he went through a period in the I think the '90s where he read a lot of Steinbeck. So. Um, yeah, writing is absolutely a form of work. You know, I do a lot of writing for my job, which is a different form of writing than what you're talking about, but it's, it's taxing, you know, <laughs> certainly mentally yeah. taxing and, and, you know, you got to be in the right mindset for it. And sometimes you have deadlines and sometimes, you know, you got to crank out just a lot of content and, um, you're not quite in the right mindset and you got to push through that. So sure. Yeah. I think it's absolutely fair, fair game for this, uh, topic. Man, I, I, I'm just looking at all the stuff that I want to discuss. I know we're never going to get to all of it, but it's, you know, <laughs> we always pick topics that are so hard to, you know, once you start thinking about it, other titles start swimming into your mind and then there's just no way to cover it all. Whether we've joked about we need a part two to just about essentially every topic driven show that we've done probably needs a part two or even three. Right. But yeah. <laughs> anyway, I'm going to keep it moving. My, my next Selection is 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 going to be hard to kind of you know summarize you know briefly, but um um it's it's very dense and long, and I'm not going to try to you know uh, cover everything that it covers, but I think it's it's really interesting to bring up in this context. A little bit of a personal choice here. I know this won't be you know known or maybe in everybody's wheelhouse who's listening to this, but in terms of uh, great in my mind for for this podcast host in terms of writing uh, great writing about the meaning and the dignity and the purpose of work I just could not not bring up um, a piece of writing which is uh, you know in many ways very much out of favor you know in the in the society both from ideologically and also just you know historically because it's a little bit older but uh, it's one of the greatest things that I've ever read about work nonfiction obviously and I'm talking about an encyclical, which was written by one of the Catholic popes, Pope John Paul II, who I've talked about before as being one of my personal you know, influences on my thoughts, such as it is, and on my reading and, and my worldview. Um, in in uh, 1981, he issued, September of 1981, he issued an encyclical, which is a long, basically like a a long teaching, but also, you know, kind of a, a meditation on a particular topic. Um, and sometimes these are, you know, a hundred pages or more. Sometimes they're more brief, but he wrote one that's called, and they always have Latin titles for those of you who aren't familiar with Catholicism at all. This encyclical is called Laborum Exercens, which translates to on human work. And it's essentially about the dignity and meaning of human work. And uh, just a little interesting bit of trivia here, Jude, you might not even have known this, that this was, he intended to release the encyclical, you know, the Catholic Church is very, you know, tradition based and, uh, you know, it's a 2000 year old institution. So um, there was an, a previous encyclical that was released uh, by the Pope Leo the 13th in the, at the end, towards the end of the 19th century, it was called Rerum Novarum. And it was, it's kind of, come to be known as sort of like, you know, the cornerstone of the modern expression of Catholic social teaching, if I can put it that way. It's sort of like, 
you know, brought Catholic social teaching up to date with kind of the modern era. And ever since that came out, it's a tradition with the Catholic papacy to every 10 years to uh, come out with a new encyclical that's based on some kind of social issue that the church wants to ring in on. So Pope John Paul II was trying to release this, this encyclical that he wrote about human work on the 90th anniversary of Rerum Novarum when that was released, but he couldn't because two days before that he was shot in St. Peter's Square. So he was shot on May 13th. This encyclical was meant to be um, issued on May 15th. Obviously that was prevented as he recovered, so it wasn't issued until September. So that's just kind of an interesting little side bit of trivia. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, just interesting backstory, but this is an extensive writing. John Paul II was an incredible, had an incredible intellect, and he's it's very everything he wrote is very dense. So, this is I'm not gonna lie, this is daunting reading. Um, and I've read through it, I think, once or twice and referred back to it from time to time. But I think it's a very, very rich document in terms of if you have any interest in it at all, if you're, um, you know, whether you're a Christian person or just a spiritual person who thinks at all about, you know, what is the ultimate person purpose of our work? How can work add dignity and meaning to our lives? Is there a relationship between our spiritual lives and our work lives? Which is something I think about quite a, quite a bit as a, as a, someone who tries to cultivate a spiritual life. Um, there's an entire section of this work laborum exercens that's called spirituality of work. And it's at the, and I want to, if you don't, if you're interested in this topic at all and don't want to read, you know, sled through the whole thing, the last section, spirituality of work, is a very, very interesting section. Again, it's written from a Christian perspective, written by an incredible intellect, um, Carol Wojtyla, John Paul II, had an incredible mind. But he writes about um, uh, a, a spirituality of work, which he says, you know, uh, includes the following components. Um, human work and human rest are a sharing in the activity of God, the creator. That's one aspect of it. Uh, he talks about how work in, as workers, we follow in the footsteps of Jesus because he had a job, you know, he worked as a carpenter and also the apostle Paul, who was a tent maker. So he kind of dives into that. Um, and then didn't know that by the way, didn't, did not know Paul was a tent maker. Well, it's interesting to think that these kind of pillars of the Christian faith had jobs, you know, and there's more to it than yeah. that, but he, he writes, I think, very wisely and very movingly about the ways in which work provides humanity with great dignity and also connects to when work is done well, how it connects to our spiritual lives. So that's just one thread in this very, you know, dense but rich teaching. And he goes into a lot also about, you know, the rights of workers, um, wages and benefits. He talks about unions, whether they're a good thing or a bad thing. And he, and he talks about that. He talks about the rights of disabled persons. You know, he talks about labor and capital. He responds to, you know, some of the teachings of Marx and, you know, whether capitalism is, what are the, what are the pros and cons of capitalism? It's a very dense teaching. Um, and not all of it will be palatable to everybody. But again, I think if anyone has ever thought about the relationship between spirituality and work and also like what is the ultimate you know a lot of us spend most of our waking hours working 
<laughs> rather than being with the people we love or rather than doing what we love. Um, and you start to want, you know, what am I getting out of this ultimately? I know I'm getting paid, but, you know, what can I get out of this that will help me as a human person, help me to become a better human being, even if you're not a, a Christian or a religious person? You know, what is the ultimate meaning or purpose or dignity in having a daily job? And this And this document really dives into many aspects of that. It's fascinating. It's like I said before about Marilyn Robinson. This is heavy sledding, but I find it, I found it very worthwhile. And it's something that you can, you know, it's available online. It's something you can go back to if you're inclined to do so and kind of find, you know, more fodder for thought, for meditation, for prayer, for whatever. So this is, to me, this is a very important title to bring up in the, in the context of this discussion. Again, I realize it's not for everybody, but it's certainly available if anybody is interested in ever, you know, diving into it or reading passages from it. So there you go. Well, for those listeners out there who trust John on this show for your reading recommendations, please direct your angry and frustrated emails to John specifically in the subject line. <laughs> when you take on this. This bring it on. <laughs> I say bring it on. <laughs> no, uh, this is interesting. Just on a personal note, I know most most people listening to us didn't know our our old man, our late father. We talk about him a lot. This is why I say that John is kind of like the guy that inherited a lot of what my dad had, because just trust me, he had a lot of this intellectual hunger and spiritual hunger that you hear pouring forth from the from the uh, eloquent lips of john f lovell but you know, listen all i'll just say is john that's a that's a really fascinating one to bring up i know it's out of favor for most people but uh i can assure our listeners he's not lying john has brought this topic up many times uh, or brought this document up i should say many times specifically relative the older we get and we talk about our jobs he does come back to this it did have a very big impact on him as did many of the writings of um saint Pope John Paul II, who's a saint, by the way. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't think I've actually ever read the whole thing, but I've, he shared with me passages of it. I've read other encyclicals, um, and they're usually hard, but they can often be really rewarding. You shouldn't just dismiss them if you have an interest in the topic of work with any connection whatsoever to what we're doing here in our spiritual lives. And I would just lastly point out, because John didn't that, you know, if you go to the Vatican website, website, all the cyclicals encyclicals are there. Maybe that won't ap appeal to everybody. But if you wanted to find this one, you can on the Vatican website. Very easy to find. So and, and I forgot to add this and I and we can move on. But I this is kind of crucial that if people are familiar with Carol Wojtyla's story at all, he spent some time doing manual labor under the German army. In Poland, he literally worked in a rock quarry, and yep. he draws on that experience very, you know, fascinatingly. And it wasn't just the work; it was, you know, the relationship with the other workers and how they, you know, the the dignity of some of these work relationships, which we we still find uh, a lot of value in to this day. At least I do. You know, when you're literally in the trenches working with people, you you really you know form some interesting bonds with them. Uh, but, you know, he worked very hard with his hands for a number of years under, you know, German soldiers. So he wasn't just, he's not just writing this from, you know, 
wireframe glasses in his office. You know, he's writing from personal experience as well. And I think that's important to, to point out. But but we got to move on. Uh, Jude, thanks for your comments. What's your next pick? I'm done with my main pick. So I want to ask you, I have some honor honorable mentions that I did want to bring up in sort of a brief way. Would you like me to dive into those or do you want to cover another sort of main quote unquote selection on your end? Um, well, I think just to give people a break from hearing me, why don't we hear something from you and then I'll come back. And if I have to, if I have to adjust, I will, but yeah, you know, let's talk about some of your other picks that maybe you're not going to go as much in depth into, but I'm sure will be interesting. Okay. Yeah. There were titles, as you said, with this topic, there are titles that kept swimming into your mind and there are some I did want to share. At least one of them was kind of lighthearted. But I want to, you know, you sort of want to put them in people's brains if they want to check them out. First thing is kind of a bucket. I'm not going to talk at length about any of these, um, but I do have to bring up again. I talked originally about Herman Melville and Bartleby and how much of a change of pace that was. But Melville's early novels um, and a few in particular are all very work intensive in terms of life at sea. So there's the the very famous novel Moby Dick. We've talked about that plenty, but that book is like a 70% work about what those guys did on those whaling ships over in their journeys around the world in periods of like three years at a time. And I've, by the way, I've, I've stood inside the last um, existing whaling vessel. That was the same kind that um, Melville spent time in that prepared him to write Moby Dick. It's in Mystic, Connecticut. And if you go in there and try to fit in the low ceilings and then think about being on that sucker for three years and doing hard, hard labor in that sucker, including what Melville called the gore-splattered, you know, deck, once they chop a whale up on it, it's just bananas. But, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, (laughs) you talk about eye-opening. But there's tons of work in Moby Dick. But also, notably, I'll just mention really quick, two earlier sea novels, one's called Redburn and the other's called White Jacket, are filled with the labor of being a seaman back in the day, you know, decades and centuries ago when being out at sea was all about work. Redburn is a little bit more from like a rookie perspective. And White Jacket is all about the labor that takes place on on a, a vessel working its way across the seven seas, including the ship surgeon that has an amazing chapter chapter about operations at sea. So I have to bring those books up. Um, John, there's a great book about the work of putting together a very work intensive film. It's a journal kept by the amazing director from Germany. Werner Herzog has this amazing book. That's a journal of his, documenting the making of a film called Fitzcarraldo that of that involved a tremendous tremendous um, labor-intensive effort to drag a ship uh, a ferry boat um, a paddle boat over a mountain to get from one river to another yeah and there's a that's the heart of that film and there's a journal that he published about making that film and the work involved there that's an incredible book it's kind of unforgettable. The book has a very Herzogian title. It's called Conquest of the Useless. Check that <laughs> out if you want to hear about the 
hard work involved in making a movie that is about hard work. You've also, um, you've also talked about that book before on the show. I know you have. Yeah. Yeah. There's a book I want to point out that I read many, many years ago, and I would have made it a main selection that I just read it too long ago. Definitely didn't have time to reread it. It's a very famous book from the 20th century called The Fountainhead, which was written by Ayn Rand. And it's, I remember sort of laboring through that book. It's about an architect, but it's very much about, and it's kind of a Barcher of Summerhouse's character. He was very determined to be the best architect in the world. But the book I remember had a ton to do about the, the labor of, of architecture and, um, and literally constructing buildings and how this guy fought his way up to the apex of that particular line of work. So, and then uh, lastly, the one last one I wanted to bring up, you could chuck every other book I've talked about out the window if you want, and you could write a book about work the way that our man Grady Hendrix did, who's a, <laughs> and write a book literally, literally about slogging through your workday in a, a store very much resembling Ikea, and I'm talking about the great novel Horror Store, which is a work novel that just happens to descend into horror, mayhem, and zombies and spirits. Right. Well, yeah, and let me correct you. Not, not your work day, your work night. Yeah, that's yeah, like, right, right. The night shift. <laughs> yeah, the overnight shift. Um, I just thought I'd throw that in the end because that is a kind of an unforgettable book, although it's not great for all that, but it's such a hilarious concept. The idea of just slogging out, going, you know, sort of literally dragging yourself in, dragging zombie style into your night shift at an IKEA type store, and then having all like blood, death, murder, and mayhem and horror cut loose during the during the course of one shift. If you'd like to read a workbook of that nature, you sh you could do a lot worse than horror store. Horror store, S T O R, all one word, written by a guy named Grady Hendrix, and I know you read that book too, John. So. I had to bring up horror store. Oh, that's such a fun book. It's like it it has all kinds of like uh, graphics in it that look like IKEA catalogs and you know fake Swedish sounding names and but then you know there's like you know ghostly activity in the store. It gets <laughs> it's that's one of these like I read it and I was like this this has to be made into a movie and I know it's been tried to be developed numerous times. Last I heard they were going to try to develop it into a TV show. I, I hope there's some kind of adaptation that comes around because it would just be so much fun. If it was done right. If it was done right. Yeah. So that's it for me. Oh, man. A lot of great stuff. There. <laughs> I have a couple more books that I wanted to discuss. I guess I'll try to work through them quickly, and i got a number of other ones that I'll just mention. Um, but I think, there'll be, I think there'll be some room for back and forth here. Um, yeah, sure. The, the next book I really want to bring up, though, you know, I just talked, I talked a couple times about some heavier books. That this next one is a really fun book. And this is my greatest regret in recording this episode is that I did not get a chance to reread this book because it's a book that came out way back in, I think, 1995. I read it when it first came out. I read it when it was on hardcover. I still have the hardcover. And I haven't read it since, but I remember it being really funny and really interesting. And I've been, you know, when I started thinking about this topic, I was just dying to go back and reread it to see 
you know, how prescient it might have been or how much it, it brought, because it's about technology. It's a book called Microsurfs. You remember that one? <laughs> oh, yeah, Mike, of course. I, I gave it to you. Did you? Man, that one. Yeah. I just, it, I absolutely, it kills me that I didn't get to reread it before we recorded this. So I think I'm probably going to reread it because, you know, I kind of refresh my memory on it. And it, it just, it was fascinating at the time. It sounds even more fascinating now in some ways to go back and read it. Uh, it's a book, you know, again, published in the mid nineties and is basically about a bunch of uh, Microsoft employees who work for the, you know, the, you know, Bill Gates who's like basically an Oz figure in this book, you know, right. <laughs> um, it's about a group of guys, just nerdy guys who work for Microsoft and, you know, kind of captures, it really captures sort of the state of the personal computing and operating system industry before Windows 95. So it goes back quite a long way. Um, but, you know, it's just about this this group of got nerdy guys who work for Microsoft, and then they decide to break off. And, you know, they create their own company. Uh, gosh, I can't remember what it's called. Um Oh boy, I'm I'm looking at something that's kind of just a plot summary because I don't want to forget. Um, but one of the anyway, one of the characters they all work for Microsoft. One of the characters has a father who uh, is a longtime employee of IBM, and then he's laid off. So that really kind of shakes him up. So it's a really interesting look at kind of like a little bit earlier, like the the kind of the dawning of the internet age and working for computer companies and the competition between. Microsoft and App Apple, for example, because at the time that this book came out, Apple was in real trouble. They looked like they wouldn't even survive, but obviously that turned uh -huh. around. That uh -huh. turned around. But there's a lot of banter, uh, you know. But interestingly enough, the guy who's writing the book, the book is presented in the form of diary entries that he's writing on a PowerBook, a Mac PowerBook. So he's sort of like secretly work, you know, with the other team, even though he works for Microsoft. Um, <laughs> and by the way, like among the many things about this book that are really fascinatingly prescient is the fact that essentially the book is essentially was, is a blog, like in the form of a blog before a blog was even a thing. Yeah. You know, this guy was writing it in basically the form of what we now know as a blog, which is really interesting, but you know, they break off, they, they, uh, they, create this other company to that or the company's called oop oop you know which is a reference to object-oriented programming and they they break off and move to silicon valley because they want to create this kind of like listen to this they want to create this sort of like digital game that kind of works like legos and it's essentially like minecraft way before minecraft uh -huh. so that's a, that's another thing in this book there's a ton of stuff in this book that's that would seem really, really prescient now. Uh, but it's also, it's just a hilarious, you know, send up of working for a technology company in the nineties and kind of like the pressures that are a part of that. And, you know, uh, I just remember being a really, and it's Douglas Copeland who wrote generation X and has written a lot of, you know, life after God He's written a lot of very funny kind of satirical novels. And so it has like a real strain of humor in it too. Uh, I just remember enjoying the hell out of this book. And it has, you know, even graphically, the way it's laid out, it has like a really interesting, you know, sort of PowerPointy kind of design to it. And it's really fun. 
and I'm really looking forward to, you know, going back to it uh, and seeing what it, what it feels like to read, you know, what, almost 30 years later, you know, and how fun that would be just in itself. So I, I really got to recommend Microsurfs by Douglas Copeland. There's a couple other books about working in offices in more modern times that I also have to mention. One is called um, Then We Came to the End by Joshua Ferris, which I've talked about on the show before. Uh, I think it was yeah. in way back to like our third or fourth episode. Uh, we were talking about what are some of the funniest books that we've ever read. I think it was in that one. I think I talked it could about have been, it. It could have been in the debut novels episode, but it, 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 uh, I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure either because, you know, that, that book actually takes a turn, a more poignant turn as it goes along. So anyway, one of our early episodes, I talked about that book. It's a great office novel. Lots of fun. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. And there's another one that, you know, we should very briefly discuss, which you actually brought it to my attention, but it, it's called The Circle by Dave Eggers. <laughs> yeah. And this was a book that I, I guess it's probably like seven or eight years old now, six or seven or eight. But it's essentially, it's a book that is a fiction book that's essentially written like about a company that re greatly resembles Google and kind of like the, what it was like to work for this sort of elite tech company. And there's this young girl who gets hired there and she kind of works her way up the ranks. And, but it also is like sort of clumsily, you know, <laughs> I, I didn't like this book at all. I was, in fact, I was shocked by how poorly plotted I felt like it was. And it was written by a highly acclaimed writer named Dave Eggers. But right. uh, I was super excited to read it because I thought Dave Eggers writing about a Google-like company, this is going to be incredible. And I thought really, really dumb and, and just kind of badly plotted and not believable in any way, but. I know that you you brought it up to me sort of off air. Did you want to make a few comments about the circle? Well, I thought it would be funny if we brought up a book we both read that we thought was like a bad work novel. And uh, and I like some of Dave Eggers' books. I he's he's very uh, diverse from the books he puts out, and he has some books that I've read that I thought were really good. But I thought this was a terrible book too. Um, not just the plotting, but also just the plausibility. And uh, even some of the writing, I just thought it was like a big kind of mess. And um, it's really interesting because it had such a sort of rich, I remember how excited we did it as kind of a mini book club amongst ourselves, you know? Oh, um, yeah. We read it kind of jointly and then discussed it. We were both like let down by the book a lot. So it's, I mean, it might not be worth like spending much time on, but it's just like, because there are people who really love this book. I thought it was kind of a, just kind of a bad fiction book in general, to be totally honest. Although he's coming out with the, but like now. Are you serious? Oh my God. Yeah, I forget. I forget. It's called, it's kind of like the next generation of that same company or uh, it has a, a different name, but it's like, it's it's like a sequel to that book, you know. Wow. So I'll have to look up what that is, and and then uh, um, I also just wanted to sort of commend you for bringing up Microsoft. What a great choice that is for this for this podcast, John. And you know, 
you didn't point this out, but it's just so fun. There's so much interesting about that book that, or that would be interesting to dive back into that book now, not only how prescient it was in a lot of ways, but just how fun it was and interesting. And also, you know, the fact that the book is called Microsurfs, S-E-R-F, you know, it's like a reference to the kind of like the, what, the lower classes of workers in like medieval times. Absolutely. Like, kind of like, yeah. like the, the pawns, you know. But that would be a very fascinating book to reread, you know, and, I, and it's so funny because I, I, I'm 95 percent sure of this, but I may be wrong because of the fallibility of our memories. But I, I think I gave you that book as a gift for getting a new job. <laughs> you know, um, I remember giving it to you on the back porch of the house that my sister used to live in. I can I vividly remember that, you know. Wow. Um, um, we were just hanging out, having dinner, and I gave it to you as a gift. And I think it was for getting a job, <laughs> like landing a job. I was like pr- uh, proud that you, you know, got this cool new job or whatever, you know. But <laughs> <laughs> and we had been fans of the book Generation X and particularly Life After God, which is a book that every time I think about it, I'm, I'm like, I've got to revisit that book too. But anyway, um, that would be really interesting. Like the 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 the, the computer heady. But pre like I this or I that days of like the battle in the Silicon Valley and stuff. Really well, interesting. That's right. And it's interesting that you bring up I this or I that and you brought up sequels to books about technology because I didn't even remember this, but much later on, Douglas Copeland came out with a book called J Pod. Yeah. That was sort of a, a sequel, if not in directly, but just a book about working in the tech industry that was much updated, just like you said Dave Eggers was going to do. So, I mean, what Dave Eggers is doing is it's already been done, for one thing, by Copeland. I mean, he did – he wrote two books <laughs> of the same – and anyway, the circle is really dumb. I got to I gotta just say it. It just it's, – it's badly plotted. It's hard to believe. It's – and it was made into a movie with Tom Hanks, and it was like this big thing. And that movie was dumb. It was just, it's really, I was just kind of astonished at, you know, how that turned out versus how interested I, I was to read it. So, anyway, I have a couple more to bring up if we have just a little more time. I think we have time. Um, and I'll, you can just, if you don't mind, and then you can just react to them. We can finish up the show. Yep, that's um, cool. I can't talk about any books about working and specifically working in tech without bringing up one of the greatest books that have ever been written, in my opinion, at least in the 20th century, about working in the field of technology. And that would be a book called The Soul of a New Machine, written by Tracy Kidder. And this was written in the early 80s, I believe. Uh-huh. Um, and... It is a nonfiction account. This book won the Pulitzer Prize. It won the National Book Award. It's a fascinating book. It's really, for as, as highly acclaimed as it is, you really don't hear it mentioned much anymore. But it is one of the it was one of the great books about working that I can think of. And it documents people who work for a technology company. I think it's it might be IBM. Gosh, I should. <laughs> Double check that. But anyway, people who worked on one of the early forms of the personal computer. Okay. And um, mm-hmm. all the hard labor and research and late hours that that this team put in 
to develop a personal computer, which was called, listen to this, the machine was launched in 1980, and it was called, oh, the company was Data General. The, the Data General Eclipse MV-8000 had the very sexy name. Uh, <laughs> Data General Corporation was a, was a, a computer vent, you know, vendor in the 1970s that obviously didn't survive, you know, like IBM. But, you know, uh, Tracy Kidder took a very deep dive into this whole process of developing and building and launching one of the earliest personal computers. And he, he just gets really into, you know, all of it. And it's just a fascinating look at what it took to kind of develop and the brain power and the effort and the determination and the, you know, business acumen and everything that went into developing, you know, what at the time was, you know, incredible new technology. And it's just a fascinating book all the way around. One of the great books about work. If you have any interest at all in technology, uh, this is this is just like a foundational text, you know? Um, yeah, I think that's kind of considered a classic of like nonfiction about technology, you know? For sure. And it also launched the career of Tracy Kidder has written many other fascinating books about, you know, nonfiction books. He's known as a nonfiction writer. I have another book of his that I've never read, but it's called House. And it's about, you know, the building of a house, kind of custom built, designing and building his own personal house and what went into that. I'm sure that's great. Um, he's got another book called, uh, oh, something about mountains, among mountains or something that's about medical workers, like overseas, I think. It's supposed to be really good. Anyway, really interesting writer, but so The Soul of a New Machine has had to be mentioned. And I've got two, two other books that I, I want to mention but I haven't read either one of them, but I think they're worth mentioning in, in this discussion. I'd love to read both. One is a book that a lot of people will have heard of because of the, the, the writer turned out this book kind of made him into celebrity. And he became a literary celebrity. And then he worked on a number of tele or hosted a number of television shows that made him an all around media celebrity. And then after that, unfortunately, he took his own life, so he became even more well-known. And I'm talking about Anthony Bourdain, who's one of probably the most famous, at this point, the most well-known chef in the world, even though he's unfortunately deceased, because he had um, two TV shows that were hugely popular. One was called Parts Unknown. The other one was called, I think, No Reservations or something like that. Um, where he would travel the he would travel the world and and basically um, explore exotic foods and where they come from. But Anthony Bourdain put himself on the map quite literally because he submitted to the New Yorker magazine an un un, an un uh, what's the word I'm looking for unsolicited uh, unsolicited submission. And of an article that he called before you go out to eat this weekend, read this or something like that. And he worked for many, many years as a, as a chef at a swanky New York city, a series of swanky New York city restaurants. And he just, he says in the article, he's just like, uh, after one particularly bad experience, a restaurant shuts down. And he says, you know, at that point I started thinking about betraying my profession. And he just wrote it. He just said, screw it. And he wrote this article about what really goes on in the kitchens of, you know, elite or, 
you know, highfalutin restaurants. And he just, it was like an expose. It was like a piece of muckraking or something from an older time. And it like literally put him on the map. And he expanded it into a book called Kitchen Confidential, uh, colon, Adventures in the Culinary Underbelly. And that is probably one of the most well-known books about, you know, working in kitchens, uh, fancy restaurants ever written. And it just is a really detailed account of what it's, you know, what goes on in kitchens of, of fancy restaurants. And it really just struck a nerve, you know, in the 19, I think it came out in something like 1999. I remember that there was talk that at that time there was an up and coming director who had made a movie called Fight Club named David Fincher, and he was going to adapt Kitchen Confidential into a movie. Brad Pitt was going to be in it. And that never happened. That would have been really interesting. But uh, yeah, that I remember when that book, you know, came out. And I and I think even though I've never read it, it just sounds like it would be a fascinating read that kind of fits into this discussion, but an area of work that we haven't really talked about. So that's one, Kitchen Confidential. And then finally, there's another book that came out. Oh, I don't know. Sometime in the early 2000s, I think that I remember taking note of and really wanting to read. I never got to it, but it's a book called Shop Class as Soulcraft. And it's written by someone named Matthew Crawford. And it's basically, he's someone who uh, has been a mechanic and an electrician for most of his career, but he basically makes a very, apparently a very eloquent, passionate case for why it's important for, for young people to learn how to work with their hands. And, you know, that, that kind of a lament that, you know, shop class. Remember, we used to have shop class when we were growing up. But yeah. these things have basically gone the way of the dodo. And he ba- make, makes a very passionate case for why we still there's great value in teaching young people how to work with their hands and manual work. Why it's important not just to learn those skills, but also uh, why in doing so my son, Nathan, who's studying engineering, he would find this very interesting, you know, why there's value in working with your hands beyond just the physical labor and learning how to work hard and learning how things work. But also, you know, if you're a carpenter, you, you, you're faced with numerous, you know, kind of uh, problem solving challenges that can involve, you know, geometry that can involve physics that can involve, involves a lot of thinking. And so he makes the case for that there's an intellectual component of manual work that gets overlooked. And so that's what this book is about. It's about, I think the, the subtitle is, um, it's called Shop Class as Soulcraft, an Inquiry into the Value of Work. I always thought that book sounded really interesting. I've never had a chance to read it, but I would really love to one day. And even though I'm the least handy person on earth, um, and I kind of miss learning most of those skills. I think it's interesting that somebody made the argument that we need to, we need to continue to teach and preserve these skills and not just for manual reasons, but even intellectual ones. Uh-uh. So, so that's the last book I want to bring up. It's just, it, you know, something if, if people had not heard of it and find, I think it sounds interesting. You know, it was a New York times bestseller. I don't remember when it came out. Uh, well, 2010, I'm reading. So it's not that old. It should be widely available. Anyway, just wanted to mention. Yeah, I mean, I actually have always wanted to read Kitchen Confidential. I, I've known about it. And uh, 
I'm not so into it as much anymore, but there was a long period of time when my wife and I were really into food shows on TV. And I was interested in kind of what was really behind all those chefs. But um, that always seemed like it would be a really interesting book to read. And then the, the shop one I've never even heard of, but that would probably be really interesting too. Yeah. For us, it would be really eye opening Cause we just, we just, that's one thing we just didn't have, you know, in our lives was kind of those skills. So. Well, and it's interesting cause I, you know, just a little personal anecdote here very quickly. I have a really good friend who I worked with for a number of years and when she was hired to work on my team, she her only experience was and she worked for 13, 14 years in the restaurant industry. And I remember her telling me, like, you know, which we all know, but she would say, let me tell you, it's hard work working in the restaurant industry. And she would share stories about some of what she had to deal with. And, you know, it's personnel, it's scheduling, it's, um, you know, resource allocation, it's budgeting. And... Uh, I came, she quickly proved herself to be an outstanding worker on a number of levels, but all of her experience was in the restaurant industry. And she absolutely busted her ass in that industry for years. And it paid off. Like she turned out to be, you know, a, a brilliant worker. And, and um, so, and she still is, and she's still a very good friend of mine to this day, but, but uh, it kind of makes a point or the pitch for both of those books, like, you know, working in the restaurant industry and kind of working, uh, you know, in whatever non, non intellectual jobs. And I say that in quotes because actually the reality of it is that those jobs require a lot of intellectual firepower and a sharp brain to do well. And we don't always realize that. So, but I learned that through this, this friend of mine. So it's just interesting to think about. Yeah, agreed. So we gotta we gotta wrap up here, but we're doing okay on time. Why don't we just take a quick break, listen to a little music? We'll wrap tease the next one, and then we're out of here. Okay, let's do it. All right. So towards the end of the show, we always talk about what we're looking forward to reading next. And I am, I know for me, I'm not going to say what I'm reading next because the next book I'm going to read is going to be in preparation for our next episode. So uh, I will talk about it when we have that episode. So I don't want to give it away now. So I'm sure you understand that. And uh, I'll discuss it with you, you know, kind of off air when we talk, when we start planning for episode 45. But uh, so I'll, I'll kick it back to you. And uh, what do you have coming up? Can you talk about it? 
Well, I can, I get, because we've already said, so one of our episodes coming up, not the one we're going to tease, but the one that's coming up or shortly thereafter is we're going to get back finally to doing a, uh, a deep dive on one particular writer. This is called our dealer's choice episodes. And we've already mentioned that we're going to do one on Annie Prue, uh, who we've talked about a few times in recent episodes. Um, but I'm going to be reading her novel from the early nineties that put her on the map called the shipping news. I, it's going to be interesting because I read it in the moment, sort of at the time that it was like a big deal. It won the national book award. And I think another big award as well. And it was the book that kind of really established her. It's set in Newfoundland. And I know it's like sort of among a sea coast sort of populace, but I, I can't remember almost anything else about this book because it's been literally 30 years. So, but I'm a huge fan of her, as we've said, and it's going to be really interesting to revisit this book, which I can remember reading. I just don't remember a lot of details from it. So the shipping news by Annie Prue. Well, that's, that's going to be fun because I'm going to read that book. Absolutely. In preparation for a, a future episode that we're thinking about to about the work of Annie Prue. Um, I've never read it. It's, as you said, it's one of her most, probably her most famous book. So I know I need to read it. So, uh, yeah, that's going to be fun when we're both kind of digging in, diving into that one and, uh, more to come on that subject. Um, which leads us to the next episode, um, which we, you know, last couple of weeks, we kind of didn't have our act together as we were sort of, as Jude said, getting our sea legs back in 2022 to tease the next episode. But, you know, we're now back ahead of the game a little bit. We know what we're going to be doing for the next episode. So why don't you uh, why don't you tease that one for us? Well, I can just do it really simply, John. Um, we're going to have a lot of fun with this. So episode 45 is going to be, um, I don't know if this is the actual title, but the topic is Monsters. And Exclamation point. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and maybe that should just be the title, Monsters. Um, but this is the kind of episode that we can really get ourselves charged up for. Although having said that, you know, like for me, like I'm not even sure what books I'm going to talk about. So I have to kind of dig into it uh, in a way, but you know, again, it's a, where do you take that term anyway, you know, and we'll explore next, next time. But like, you know, what is a monster exactly? You know, we're talking about a, monster that we call a really bad person we talk we're definitely going to get into like literal monsters you know like or uh yeah fantastical monsters you know so anyway that's the topic it's monsters and it's going to be a great a great howling you know episode with lots of fun behind it so don't miss it (laughs) nice i see what you did there with the howling nice (laughs) um yeah i mean i think any definitions are welcome and encouraged for that episode and we'll certainly get into it but it's going to be another one where we can have a lot of fun just kind of playing around with with that term and what it might mean and you know what are the, some of the great monsters you know in the history of literature whether they're you know literal ones or figurative it, it's all on the table so that's going to be I'm really looking forward to that one I have a couple of titles already in mind uh, that's going to be a lot of fun. So I hope uh, listeners will follow us for that one. And, you know, uh, like I like I mentioned earlier, one of the titles that came up, uh, then we came to the end. 
this is the end of episode 44 of the Book Exchange Podcast. Thank you for joining us. John Lovell here signing off from Maryland. And this is Jude. Thank you for listening, and we appreciate y'all. And come back for the next episode. So long. Take care.